welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal episode 76. This is the second half of our episode looking into Mastodon and all their related side projects. I'm once again joined by Rob. Hello. And Finn. Hi there. We, we're picking up, like in the first half we covered all the years pre-Mastodon for the various members and up to Crack the Sky, the kind of legendary um, series of four related albums. And at this point in time, that felt like a logical break because at that point in time, there was a massive change for the band. Should say with this, I kind of forgot to mention this in the previous episode, this is very much in the spirit we've done all our kind of deep dives on band discographies of this is, we are looking into the music of the band, we've listened to all the related songs. This is not an in-depth history of the band that I've looked into less and it is less the focus of what we're talking about. It's looking into the musical evolution. So details may be wrong, like, and we might not, we might miss crucial historical events because that's not what we're aiming to cover. But if there is really interesting historical events that, like, might have influenced the sound and we missed them, let us know. So ahead of, like, obviously we're going to jump into the, the next Mastodon album proper in a moment, but ahead of that there was some ground between... Uh, their fifth album, The Hunter, and Crack the Sky. So first off, and I don't know if either of you two actually listened to this. I I, I totally missed this in my my research. Apparently, Mastodon were on the the soundtrack to uh, Joanne Heck's Revenge Gets Ugly, um, and they did four four songs for it. So from from what I know, Joanne Heck's Revenge Gets Ugly is maybe seen cinematically as like a spiritual successor to um, Akira Kurosawa's Throne of Blood. Um, that that is a that, that was a joke. Sorry, uh, clearly I know that it's, it's oh, sorry. a really <laughs> trashy horror movie from from the late two thousands. I, I yeah, that <laughs> I, I was not expecting that to fall that flat. <laughs> Phil, Phil just flexing on us here. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. Phil knowledge. <laughs> Throne of Blood's famous, right? <laughs> I think that's well known. But yeah, have you actually listened to this? Because I totally missed um, these four songs they did for that film. Yeah, so so I checked this one out. It's got quite a fun story behind it. The director, um, Jimmy Hayward, um, who will go on to be part of one of the side projects we'll talk about later. Um, he had been involved in a whole bunch of stuff. He worked on Pixar's Toy Story. He directed Horton Hears a Who. He loved Blood Mountain. And afterwards, he rang up Mastodon and said, look, that was brilliant. I want you guys to record like the score to this film. Um, and out of that, this was born. Um, and it's a really like interesting piece because... There's some stuff that you'll see later on, like in the sort of main song from it. Uh, it's like really slow and suspenseful and it's film score music. Like it's not a Mastodon album. It sounds very, very different. But there's some great bits of atmosphere, like on songs like the Indian theme, where like Mastodon do what they do in bits of Crack the Sky and build up a really cool atmosphere. Um, I do kind of want to watch the film just to see what it sounds like in context, because there were some really cool ideas but it, you know, it doesn't come across like a Mastodon album. There aren't these crazy snare fills going on all around because that would just destroy any film uh, that it's in. But I thought it was a really cool little bit of Mastodon history. Yeah, I'm, I'm really annoyed I, I totally missed this in the research. Have you heard it at all, Finn, then? No, I, I, I don't know anything about this. So, Well, at least it's something new to look into afterwards. Yeah, this is on me. I left out of the show notes. So, yeah, yeah definitely, definitely one to check out. 
Uh, worth pointing out that it's entirely instrumental as well, uh, which is really interesting, just hearing Masters on Approach stuff like that, because particularly at this point, the variety of vocal sounds they've got have become such an important part of how they play their songs. Hearing that suddenly stripped away and hearing them cover very different emotional angles from what they've done previously is really cool. Yeah, that, that, that conceptually sounds sounds really interesting. And and also, I am writing off the film as trashy, and I have no idea. I've never seen it. It just, from the marketing, looks really trashy. Well, it's funny that you said the, the guy was had involvement in Toy Story, because also that kind of ties to Pixar, because I think um, Island from Leviathan was also in Monsters University. Not sure if it was the same guy who had any say in that, but just a cool little fact. <laughs> and he becomes a part of... Um... One of Brent's side projects later on when we get there. The one about seagulls, its name is escaping me. Oh, Legend moment. of the Seagullman. Uh, but but yeah, this so this this director, Jimmy Hayward, plays guitar in Legends of the Seagullman. So it's got a weird yeah. like poetry to it. Amazing. Right, so there's a few more releases before we get to the hunter that I want to bring up. Um one of the most offensive ones is Crack the Sky Abridged. <laughs> Abridged? <laughs> yeah, which is a two-song EP featuring the Tsar and the Last Baron, but seven-minute versions of each song. Why? I have no idea. I don't know why <laughs> this exists. It's something I just saw. I, have you ever listened to abridged versions of songs you really like? I was gonna, well, Slipknot, probably not the best example, but Slipknot have this terrible habit of writing album songs that sound quite cool, but then they chop two or three minutes out to turn it into a single version. And it just sounds unnatural and not very good. The, the most egregious one I'm aware of is the video version of Opeth's um, Ghost, not Ghost of Position, uh, the other famous song from that album. Why am I blanking the name? Rob, what was the other single from Ghost Reveries? Grand, um, Grand Conjuration. Yes, so the Grand Conjuration, there's a five minute long edit of a ten minute long song. This sounds like it's going to be the same thing. And the, like when you know a song as deeply as, you know, like people get into Opeth, this is going to give you nightmares. Anyway, moving on. Uh, so the the kind of the sad thing following how brilliant we all thought Crap the Sky was is in 2011 they put out a live album uh, live at the Argon um, where they played Crack the Sky in full with a follow up of like five classic tracks to end the set which sounds like it sounds amazing that sounds like it's going to be the best kind of capturing of this band and what's really sad and worthy of comment is. So the evolution we talked about in the previous episode of Mastodons, they started including all these like interesting, clean vocal passages. And what becomes abundantly clear on this album in 2011 is at that point in time, they could not pull off their clean vocals. So I watched the video earlier today, actually. So I listened to the album earlier in the week, and I hate to say it, but I kind of got a few tracks in and thought, oh, I'm not sure I can sort of stick with this. Because, Rob, I specifically remember in the last episode, you saying The Last Baron, for example, immediately opens up with a vocal hook. And, I mean, the biggest offender is Brent, it has to be said, on this live album. Really, I'm not sure what it is, but he just really can't push the vocals out. Uh, watching the live video, it seems a bit better, because uh, I think Troy and um, Bran are mostly okay. And you, once you see that Brent's playing guitar, it's not that he's sort of sat there half-arsing it. But it, it just, it, th these songs have such momentum, and the vocal hooks are so important to the feeling of the, the pieces. And, just, and, and when the vocals just are not landing at all, it just really takes you out of the experience. And it just kind of feels like the songs are being ruined, and I don't want to associate it with them, you know? There's moments in it that are okay. So, like, listening to Oblivion, Oblivion's not too bad. And there's a couple of moments in it 
where like say Troy and Brown will do a vocal line together and it's like yes you 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 hit that that really worked but I think even with Brown and it's not surprising like the even on Crack the Sky there is a lot going on on the drums and you know finding the way to like you know sit comfortably be able to play those drum patterns and do the vocal melodies at the same time is a tall fucking order I think even of all the best drummers in the world very few of them could manage that at the same time so like he's clearly still working that out how he does that technique and keeps his fills going and because Brown is one of those drummers who has fills in unexpected places he's often clashing the fills with his vocal parts so that's really really hard and even though he does a pretty good job it's not quite there it's not the massive intensity of the album and it, it, yeah and again there are moments where it's really good and you're like yes that's exactly it but it's not consistent enough it's it's probably as massive on live releases go probably not the one to start with it's it's definitely a for fans only kind of deal but it, i guess an interesting artifact at that point in time and they would grow from that point but this brings us to something the, the, the next, we're going to jump into the hunter now and what we should say is previous episode we were more or less in agreement throughout like we we very much you know the the opinions we had on each of those albums was more or less shared for the entirety of this episode i don't know what people think about everything we're going to cover and we this might all come to blows and it's going to start early with the hunter which is one i think we all feel very strongly about in different ways but Finn, you've always been a big defender of this album. So do you want to tell us what you think is great about this one? Yeah, so I mean, so like I said in the previous episode, my, I'm a very big fan of Queens of Stone Age. And to me, I, I think this basically sounds like Mastodon kind of channeling that weird Queens of Stone Age loose energy. I can see, I mean, I appreciate you were, you were probably a fan of the band before this album came out. So I appreciate going from Crack the Sky to this as a fan at the time. Must have been quite jarring, but I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have that problem because obviously I, I just knew it was an album that was out by the time I started listening, so I didn't have to feel that immediate jump from one style to the other. But I like it. It feels, you know, obviously it's much more streamlined. The songs are way less crazy, much more kind of radio rock. Song structures are much more typical with the kind of the verse chorus thing coming in. But I, just, I really like the melodies on this album. I think it, it feels nice and sunny. The production, I think, is great. Yeah, I'm, I just really like it. It's, I think it's, I consider it a different class to things like Leviathan and Crack the Sky. Because whereas those I call absolute all-time perfect classics, this is, I think, just, just a really good, really fun rock record. There's nothing kind of legendary about it, but I think it's, I think it's really solid. It's really solid. So, uh, like, the, the Hunter's fine. Um, it, so it's got a whole bunch of cool ideas, and Mastodon clearly, like, are quite fundamentally changing up their sound at this point. Uh, and looking at interviews with them, you know, basically having to play Crack the Sky Live was just a bit of a pain. Like, it's really complicated. It's really hard for them to do, particularly with all these vocal parts. And they just wanted to do something a bit different. They wanted to do something fast and catchy, easy to play live. So, you know, you've got this thing with loads of songs on it. Pretty much all of them are under five minutes, most like three or four minutes. Um, and you've got a lot of like catchy stuff, cool riffs. Um, they started off like in 2011 when this was released, they were on live with Jules Holland playing Black Tongue, the first song off the album, which again is really strange to watch because even this period of Mastodon is heavy for people who aren't into any like real form of metal or anything. Like even if you're a big Queens of the Stone Age fan, this is heavy in comparison. So I think there's a, there's some cool ideas here. Like, if you look at some of the songs, like, Octopus Has No Friends, it's got a cool, like, country lick in it, which, like, is a really cool idea. I just think there's too many ideas that don't quite land. They're not quite confident 
in this style yet. To me, this feels like an album that is really not very confident in what it wants to be. If you contrast that to something like Once More Round the Sun or catchy songs off of Emperor of Sands like Show Yourself, the difference is unimaginable. Like the Show Yourself is so much more confident and knows exactly what it is. Whereas for parts of this album, and there are great bits, like I love Drybone Valley, for example. I think that's great. Um, and I also actually really love The Sparrow, the track like right at the end of the album, which is really mournful and simplistic and minimalistic with just the same vocal line repeated throughout. But almost, almost everything else on this album comes off to me as like, trying a new thing, trying a whole bunch of ideas. And it's kind of cool, but comparing it to Crack the Sky, like it doesn't even get close to that emotional resonance. Yeah, so as someone who bought this when it came out, um, I remember like this was this would have been just as I'd left uni. And a lot of my friends who were into metal at uni had been converted into metal vans by Crack the Sky. Even some of like, my proper like hardcore like black metal loving mates have been like, actually, Crack the Sky has really got something to it. So we all went out, we all pre-ordered or at least ordered it like as soon as it came out, The Hunter. Didn't listen to any leaks of it. Like, yes, I'm going to get this. It's going to be great. And I remember the, like putting it on for the first time and just the absolute gut punch of like, oh shit, they just decided to do something totally different. Like, they weren't going to evolve into a more progressive thing. They weren't, like, whereas all four of those, that core album felt like a logical step one after another. This felt like the band going, right, we're doing something else. And as Finn says, it, it is that kind of Queens of Stone Age feel, that, that kind of loose rock album where it's like, here's 12 cool ideas we've had they don't really connect. It's not like the the Blood Mountain thing where it's like exploring lots of cool themes, but there's an overarching. There isn't really an overarching thing to the Hunter. It doesn't flow into each other in any particular way. And even gone is some of the like the kind of the mastodony themes, the kind of the the giant epic um, historical or mythological creature element. There's bits of it there, but it's not there in the same way. Um, yeah, so as as Rob pointed out, there there are good moments. I really like Stargasm. Drybone Valley is is really strong, but it's the fact they they had become a rock band on this album. This is this is a rock album. I I, I think it's fair to say. I think I've got to give a shout out though to Curl of the Burl and the fantastic intro lyrics of "I killed a man because he killed my goat." I love that. Like that's some Macedon weirdness that I that I appreciate on the album. Yeah, so I, I read a, an interview with Bran, I think it was a few years ago, where he basically uh, listed all of his uh, Mastodon albums sort of least favourite to favourite. And he said, to be fair, that Hunter was his least favourite, because he said at the time, sort of, they went to the studio. It, during the making of this album is when Bill decided to go to rehab. So he did say the songs that you hear on the album, normally he said, we'd then go away and go, cool, what can we add to these to make it a bit weirder? Because Bill had to sort of step out of the picture. They said, well, we more or less just had to kind of release what we'd already written and recorded, not having time to tweak them. Which is why the ideas probably aren't as, as crazy or finished as they are on Crack the Sky. What I really like about that, though, is... Because we haven't got into this too much with the various members of the band. Like, um, Troy is the the kind of de facto lead vocalist, or at least seriously was in their early career. Um, Bran is this backbone. Like, his drumming is the first thing anyone noticed about the band. And Brent is the kind of the absolute wild card. Whereas Bill is the solid, dependable guy. He doesn't really do a lot of vocals on studio stuff. He Live, he just does backing death metal vocals, essentially. He just does this really low growl. So he's never that noticeable. But it is interesting that 
I think most people would agree Hunter is one of their weaker offerings. And it's interesting that just the removal of Bill from this, this completely solid lineup had that much of an effect on it. And like, but he's not the notable member, he's the rhythm guitarist. Like, but even he is a key component. And some of this can be tied to them getting really successful, but the fact they have remained this core four for now 20 years without any lineup changes barring very briefly having a different vocalist is incredible to my mind. Yeah, there's all those bands that if, if one of them left, I absolutely would not consider it the same band anymore. Yeah, and I think like some of the positive stuff to get out of this album is there is still some evolution going on here, which is really cool. Like I mentioned The Sparrow before, which is probably my favourite track off of it. You can see this really minimalistic, almost trance-like idea from that song gets echoed later on in stuff like when they did the song for Game of Thrones, White Walker, uh, which is, again, much more, much more like ambient and atmospheric than any of the other stuff. You can still see them playing around with new ideas. You know, While this might not be the same thing as Crack the Sky, Mastodon continue to evolve they don't get stuck in ruts and you can see that as they continue on to the next few albums although i i will say for me i genuinely like i would say dislike this album because it was from someone i respected so much and it was the moment of them kind of fumbling at a new idea it's so something i often talk about if i love eps because i feel eps are the perfect place for a band to play around with a new sound and we'll actually get to that with Mastodon at some point later but this felt like something that shouldn't have been a full album it, it felt that like them attempting a new sound and not quite and kind of floundering with it to some extent despite despite good moments I but I know you you have a higher opinion than that Finn yeah, like I said, I, so I mean, obviously, we'll get onto once more around the sun very soon. But yeah, I, I, I'd call this a, a solid seven out of ten. There are actually no tracks on the album that I dislike. I think I enjoy it all the way through. It does. It's quite jarring if you look at it chronologically, going from from really, really focused and, like I said, overarching things like Crack the Sky. This is much more of an anthology where everything just kind of stands on its own. There's no themes or linking. Although it is worth noting that they did say that, given that the, the first four albums were about the, the four elements, they said the element of this was considered to be uh, wood, which apparently in ancient uh, Chinese culture was considered the fifth element. So it's got that kind of forest feeling to it. So they're still loosely con uh, continuing on their, their elements theme, just obviously in a much less committed way. Which I think links into um, another important thing, which is the album artwork on this changes. Um, so it's based off of a sculpture called Sad Demon Oath by AJ Fossick, which marks a departure from Paul Romano, who, you know, had been such a big part of the series of last albums. So this really is a big changing point. Um, I love the collector's edition of this, which is what I've got. Um, the thing, the, the normal one, the, the image is great. I just don't really like the background. I don't think it sets the image off really well. But the collector's edition is beautiful. Just not, it's it's very, very different from what we've seen before. Like, it's still a great album cover, but it doesn't have that, like, you know, immersive painting where you can discover so much by just by looking at it. Yeah, it lacks a lot of the sort of mythology of the previous album covers.
that will happen post this. There's a couple of interesting splits, which again, I, I kind of miss the Spoonful weighs a ton and feasted on. I don't know if either of you checked out either of those. I think a lot of that appears on medium rarities later on, doesn't it? It, it sure does, yeah. So we'll, we'll save that till then. So um, after this, there is this is where we get the big theme of this episode will be all the various members of Mastodon's dalliances with solo projects. So in 2011, same year as The Hunter, Brent Hines has two additional projects come out who release a split album together. It's Fiend Without a Face, Brent Hines, oh, Brent Hines presents Fiend Without a Face and West End Motel, which is, this is like an hour-long album where it's like half an hour each, essentially, if I'm not confusing it. This was an interesting kind of, um, kind of release. I think it starts, I think it starts with the Fiend Without a Face half, which is a very, like, particularly this release from this band, is a very weird thing. Because it feels like an album made by, like, three guys fucking around in, like, really low-budget, kind of, like, almost home-recorded kind of stuff. Uh, doing just, like, this weird kind of, what do they call it, like, rockabilly porno metal band with a country twist. <laughs> Which is fucking meaningless, but like essentially it's something with a core of blues, but like this kind of that mix with this twisted like circus kind of theme. I kind of like this one because it's it's such a kind of messy, unpolished thing for someone as accomplished as Brent is at this point in his career to put out something this lo-fi, this kind of really fuck aroundy. I, I yeah, there's something about it and it, it had a consistently creepy atmosphere that I I actually kind of uh I kind of love. Oh shit, I forgot I split the quote in half. The quote is with a country twist, a little surf guitar and apple sauce on the side. <laughs> <laughs> Their songs sound like Def Leppard hanging out with the ventures at an Indian wedding. What the? F I don't know where that <laughs> quote is from. <laughs> uh. Yeah, how do you get on with this one, Finn? Uh, yeah, I quite liked it. Weirdly, I actually got a bit of a butthole surfers vibe, especially because I think Brent, Brent's doing the vocals as well. Actually, a very Gibby Haynes-esque vocal performance, mainly shrieking into a microphone over some kind of strangely creepy music. Yeah, it was good. It's um, I kind of, I mean, I know it was only half an hour long, but I kind of hoped that they would do a bit more kind of felt like they had the exact same guitar tone and kind of playing the entire way through i was hoping they deviate a bit but yeah it's basically it sounded a bit like uh what was the note i wrote it sounded a bit like a, a wedding band who've just done a lot of cocaine and decided they're going to do their own thing <laughs> so yeah it's cool it's bluesy like i said it's creepy and, and tsunami as well the instrumental in the middle actually very very beautiful and that you know that that's not a silly song at all that's actually builds and rolls very very nicely and it, yeah it sounds like a band having fun I wouldn't. I mean, the later stuff sounds a lot more, you know, like a fully thought through. This sounds like a, like a fun thing they just did for a bit. But yeah, overall, I'd say it's quite enjoyable. So this this is one of the ones I didn't get round to actually. So I'm interested to because it it sounds sort of like it's one of those things where you know at this stage where Macedon have become a massive band, you know, they're looking at 
what other things can we do musically? Who else can we work with? Who are these other people? You know, we can do we can do this stuff now. We're at that level. So how would you recommend would you recommend this to someone who's been quite into Mastodon? Say they're either like say they're into like the more recent part of Mastodon. Would it be something you'd say, go check this out? No, this is uh, I would argue this is totally irrelevant. This is a member of Mastodon doing something that none of these ideas have any place in Mastodon, and that's fine. They he's doing something completely different with this. Um the notes I sort of got on it, it just saying like I do think there's something quite cool here in places. There's moments in it that genuinely put me in mind of the Cardiacs, which is a like a hard band to kind of um the to pull off anything close to it. It's far more straightforward, far less intense, but it does have that slight kind of edge of like horror that the cardiacs manage only this release from this band does this but they it's got that similar terrifying vibe to me the west end motel half of this very different that's that's all the horror is gone this is them just doing straight kind of mellow rock surf rock blues country that kind of amalgamation lots of ham and organ gentle guitar um yeah it's fine yeah, see, my, my issue with this is, uh, like you said, it's fine, and uh, it's, maybe it's just not my genre, so I don't have the kind of capacity to appreciate it, but I think being on a split with Fiend Without a Face, and especially opening with Fiend Without a Face, that kind of set the tone for something fun and a bit crazy. Uh, I mean, I hate to sound like a Philistine, but I found this very boring by comparison, especially straight after the first half. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of said about this, it's, it's well and truly, like, not my genre, and I don't know if it's, like, I don't know if it's derivative or like uh, and bland or if this is a great example of the genre and i'm just not into it but yeah west end motel is something that it's so far removed and it's not like i can't get into anything that's not metal but it's so far removed from anything i listen to i just i don't have a frame of reference for it i can't really say whether it's good or bad yeah i'd call it it's functional you know the melodies are there and it's it's all you know very nicely played it doesn't really pop in the same way that anything else I've listened to on this list has. It is the one where, like, talking about it now, I'm trying to conjure moments from it in my head, and I just, I can't. I can kind of, I can hear uh, Fiend Without a Face's um, 12 Bar Blues weirdness, but I can't, I can't hear, uh, I can't hear West End Motel at all. Yeah, exactly. I think I think it just lacks the character because even Fiend Without a Face, that first half is obviously very unpolished, but it's still there's a lot of personality that's quite immediate. Whereas with this, I think it just doesn't have the same kind of immediate character. Yeah. So the thing I can't quite remember, like I'm, I've really confused myself here. In 2012, West End Motel put out Time Can Only Tell. That's a second release from that band, right? Yes. Yeah. So the the, the split they did with Fiend Without the Face was the first, and then they immediately followed up with Only Time Can Tell. Yeah. So the next thing we get is is Only Time Can Tell, which, like, I remember having a bit more. Like, I can remember this one basically, and I remember having some enjoyment of this. Like, there's moments that cross a line. the The introduction of a saxophone at one point goes into truly like cheesy radio rock kind of world but i liked like the layering of yeah. some really good like ham and organ stuff on this that made it feel very very kind of late 60s early 70s like they capture that vibe very well but it's all a bit too kind of slow and mellow and i think there's a problem as well of like Brent really wants to always be part of these. He's in many projects we're covering, and he always wants to be part of them vocally. And his vocals just feel 
out of place on this more so than any other. When he comes in with his... Because his voice is a bit too rough and nasty. Like, I know, I think maybe he's trying to channel a bit of that, like, Tom Waits energy. But if you've ever been to an acoustic night and there's that guy who can't sing there who thinks he's going to be Tom Waits, only Tom Waits can do Tom Waits. Anyone else doing that kind of thing on an album is so incredibly fucking awkward. I know he's not quite doing that, but he feels like that presence in the room on this. Like, his guitar works great and it really fits. But again, I don't know with this whether it is derivative, whether it's really a straightforward example of the genre or if they're doing something clever with it. I just don't have the frame of reference. So on something we do know, um, this is the next live album Mastodon put out. Interestingly, sort of two in a kind of tight period of time. They're uh, live at Brixton from 2013. Um, so this is one where I've watched a few of the videos from it, um, but I haven't ever listened to like the live album in full. Um, I guess that's interesting. I find I don't tend to listen to live albums myself. Um, so I'm I'm curious to hear Finn's thoughts on this one. Uh, so this one, I'd like to start off before I talk about the quality. That I find it very annoying. This is an online-only release because it, it's a live album and DVD. I would love to own the DVD because I'd really like to put that on my big screen, but you can't. I just think that's a really stupid oversight, especially for a band that obviously you've seen the, the the work they put into their vinyl releases. For a band that clearly acknowledges the existence of physical media, I find it very very silly that there isn't a physical release of this. But I guess that's kind of an aside. Uh, yeah, this one I think especially contrasted to Live at the Arrogant. Is, is a lot more confident. Obviously, at this point in the band, uh, Bran, rather than doing occasional guest vocals, is a full-on third vocalist at this point. I think of the three of them, his vocals actually end up being the strongest on this one. Uh, the opening track, Drybone Valley, is, is normally when I'm thinking of Mastodon Live. Uh, the live version from this album specifically is the one I like to watch because I think they really nail it. And yeah, it just sounds a lot more confident than the... Uh, I mean, it's... Obviously, it's kind of a shame that they'd gone into The Hunter at this point because then the... When they play songs from Blood Mountain next to songs from The Hunter, it does sound a bit jagged. Because the massive contrast in styles. Yeah, overall, I think they, they play the songs really well. Uh, yeah, Brent's vocals are a bit stronger on this one. It sounds like they're, they're a bit more confident as well. Because I guess they're less bogged down by having to play an entire complex album in its entirety. Yeah, I, I'd agree largely. Like, I, I think the set list really suffers for the Hunter just being mixed in with the other stuff. Because it's like, it has that thing of the whole thing comes like a screaming halt of like, oh, and now here's a rock song after something that sounded so much more massive. But as you say, each vocalist is clearly got a bit better i still think some of the performances are kind of flawed like i i still think brent kind of sounds shit on this like i i don't i don't really like his vocal performance and that's marred some of the time this was like 2013 was when i started seeing the band live and there was a bit of that thing of like sometimes if brent was having a bad night all his vocals sounded kind of like someone slowly stepping on a cat <laughs> you just get that like <laughs> well, well in, in fact rob and i used to have a cat and we actually named it brent for that very reason <laughs> i mean you say have a cat a cat used to wander into our house yeah um, but yeah i i think i'd agree and i think in a sense like they've had this time to develop how they actually play these songs live having the hunter in a sense is probably a really good thing for them now because while I agree that like the Hunter songs really stick out in this set list, particularly because there's a bit towards the end where they play like four or five back to back, and then it's like, oh, and then they go back to a Leviathan song, and you're like, holy shit, this is so much more impactful. But in a way, I guess it frees them up because they're not having to play the entirety of Crack the Sky 
which is just a nightmare. Like, that's so difficult to do and get right. You know, they actually have, like, you can play something off the Hunter, which is, like, much more straightforward. You can relax into it, and then you can tackle some of these bigger songs. So I think they do play Crack the Sky, the song. Um, so, you know, they do have some of these big moments in it. But, yeah, seeing that as sort of the side of the Hunter, which has ha- allowed them to sort of relax and play all of this stuff together, is really good, and given them that confidence to play. Well, this brings us into the point where I think we're all going to stop being friends. This is Mastodon's sixth album, Once More Around the Sun, which I'll let Finn take the lead on because Finn is a huge fan of this album. Well, you know, look, I, I've thought about this a lot. I'm going to kind of say it. this is my favourite album of all time. Which, you know, Your it's, it's favorite album my favourite album of all time, which is weird because I consider Queens of Stone Age to be my favourite band. But this uh, something about this album, I just uh, I know we're talking a lot about with Crack the Sky, the, the emotions and the feelings. Uh, something about this one, it's something about the mood and the feeling. It, it's... It's got that kind of crack the sky sorrow and loss, but it's it, it's not as obviously crack the sky is very personal because it's very about a specific thing. Resistance, I, I think I read a comment that someone said this album just feels a bit like a like a metal self help book. So you know, and again, so the, obviously following the elements, they said this one uh, the element is death. Uh, so it's not about anything in particular, but it's like the, the sense of tragedy and loss throughout the album. I just find very very moving. And uh, songs like Asleep in the Deep is uh, probably my my third favorite Mastodon song. I just you know ugh, I can't put into words how how transcendent i find listening to this the the feelings really resonate with me and also the fact that it kind of um the last two tracks it goes from halloween which is incredibly queens the same energy has this kind of big stop start fun funky finish and then immediately just decides to end on um diamond in the witch house this incredibly horribly slow sludgy sort of bleak song which once you see live with scott kelly when he brings out a third guitar is one of the heaviest things i've ever heard so i when I first listened to Once More Around the Sun, um, you know, being big into Mastodon when it came out, similarly with The Hunter, like, I'd kind of got on with The Hunter in a weird way when it had first come out, but when Once More Around the Sun came out, I really didn't get it. Like, I think part of my brain had just, like, processed all of this stuff and just gone, like, I don't really like this new direction. It's not really working for me. Looking back on it now, I like it a lot more and I like The Hunter a lot less. Um, for me, Once More Around the Sun sounds so much more confident in what it wants to be and knows exactly what it is, in contrast to The Hunter just not knowing where it wants to go or what it is. Um, and you can see that with how much they play around the, with the formula. Like, the length of songs and the theme and the like impetus of songs is so different. Like, contrasting something like um, High Road to Motherload to Diamonds in the Witch House. Like, these are so, so different. You've got chunky riffs back again like on high road like i remember that being released and thinking that's a great riff i love that riff um although they did steal the music video from red fang who did it better um but there's lots of variation on this which i really like and it takes this new direction of mastodon and does something mastodony with it like it plays around with it puts new things in it isn't as good as the first four albums in my opinion like it's not even close it's a different version of mastodon and it's one that i just doesn't hit me in the same way but i like it so much more than the hunter because it feels confident it feels like a group who know what they're doing they've played around with this ideas and now they're going to put it out there um and it's got it's got some great guitar work on things like chimes at midnight some incredible like groovy sections on halloween it's very different but it knows what it is and it's confident I just want to defend Mastodon here. I think the Red Fang and Mastodon video is very different. Like, the Red Fang one's kind of funny and the Mastodon one's really sad. Yeah. I I don't know. I just... <laughs> they're, 
they, one one is a group of guys get drunk and beat up LARPers. The other is like a kid's granddad dies. Maybe it's been too long since I watched the video, but I re- might need to rewatch these two. Rob, I just remember it being a thing where there's like LARPing and D and D and stuff, and I was like, "Oh, Red Fang, I've done that, and they did it better." Red Fang's video, right? Plot-wise, is they get really drunk, beat up some LARPers, then get together in their beer can armor and celebrate, and then the LARPers come back and kill them. The Mastodon video is a kid goes LARPing, but because he's literally gets beaten up by all the like edge lord nerds at the LARP, um, then goes home with his granddad and like trains to get really strong and wins the LARP when he comes back next time and the the like after he wins the LARP the edgelord kids from the LARP beat him up in the car park his granddad comes to save him and fails and has a heart attack and that is how the video ends it's really good I clearly it's... didn't watch the end of the video <laughs> I have you no recollection need to of that this, Robbie. <laughs> So, all my opinions on this album aside, that video, fucking solid stuff. Both great. Like, the Red Fang video is really good fun as well. But they, have, they do something very different. Okay, so, I'm probably... I'm sorry, Finn. I couldn't get into Once More Around the Sun, I'm afraid. Like, this this hits at the core of, of what I don't like about Newer Mastodon. And it's sadly, it's brands choruses i don't like his big clean vocal hooks i think that's the bit of the band where i'm like ah that's that's them doing something normal and and when when put in that kind of light as well i I don't think bran is a truly brilliant singer i think he is a good rock singer but i i don't think Earlier Mastodon for me is this transcendent thing. It is something I feel totally deserves to be seen in that lighted kind of ease where it's like above a lot of its contemporaries. Once More Around the Sun to me was just like, especially the first half, a really like solidly executed rock album, but just nothing that really sits with me for a long time. Like the, the aforementioned like High Road and Motherload. I don't love all that much. Like, it picks up a lot in the second half for me. Like, you said, like, Asleep in the Deep is one of your all-time favourite songs. Asleep in the Deep is brilliant. I I can't deny that at all. But then it fucks with me by doing... That, that fucking chant bit in Aunt Lisa sounds like Be Aggressive by Faith No More, and I hate both those songs. Like, that fucking, like, cheerleader chant thing I can't stand. It, it gets better towards the end, like... Diamond and the Witch House is incredible. Scott Kelly brings it back for, like, for me, strongest moment of the album when his vocals come in. There is great stuff on this, but I I, I, I really wanted to enjoy this. And I, I, I've i given it, like, five listens, fully open mind. I haven't gone back to it for a long time before this. And I, I couldn't do it. I just, I don't, I don't love this. I don't. I don't find anything in here pulling me back to listen to it many more times. Like maybe individual tracks, maybe Dying in the Witch House, um, Sleep in the Deep, I'll revisit in isolation. But the fact is, I don't get the first four songs, and that's where I struggle. And I, I think both you and Rob really enjoy those moments, so I'm clearly missing something. To be yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, again, it's all just preference, really. But you mentioned the motherload because to me, I consider that to be a perfect pop song because the structure is literally just you know verse, chorus, verse, chorus, middle eight, whatever. But I, just, I mean, I, and again, you mentioned Brown's vocals. To me, that's you know his singing in the verse and the vocal effects as well, where his vocals kind of bleed in before they actually start. And I just, I just find it so beautiful and so you know, yeah. I guess it's just different preference, isn't it? 
Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I really wanted to like this because I know how much this album means to you. But like, and it's it's not bad by any means. Like, this is an album that is well executed. It sound it sounds great. This is a band clearly. They they're clearly doing exactly what they intended. Hunter, as you say, has a good reason for feeling a bit messy. It clearly wasn't the album they wanted. I will say that once more, understand this is clearly the album the band wanted to do. I think this is just the point for me where the band has evolved into something outside of what I want from them. So, so something I hope we can agree with on is um uh, the album artwork by uh, I think his name was Frank Skinner. Yeah, the album artwork is absolutely fantastic, and especially if you've seen the the inverse, where if you sort of, um, I guess on the vinyl you open it up and it kind of has the inverse of the image where everything goes dark and horrible at the end. Because uh, the, the guy who did that arc, he ends up doing a lot of their music videos later down the line as well, including the music video for Asleep in the Deep, which I don't know if either of you two have seen it. Absolutely, absolutely gripping, really well done, mixes so many different genres and, and animation styles up. Yeah, I think the album artwork for this is fantastic. Very, very summery and bright. And interesting, I know we'll probably get onto um, Cold Dark Place later on. Uh, three of the songs from Cold Dark Place were actually originally recorded during the sessions for Once More Around the Sun. But they said that all the songs on this album, they said, felt very summery and bright, as you can probably see in the album artwork as well. And then these other three songs, they said, oh, they feel very wintry and cold, so they didn't feel the right place on this album. So I'm very happy, because I remember for years reading about these songs that they one day might release, and I'm very glad they finally did put them out. That's really interesting. Uh, as I say, that, that that plays into this whole theme of like they knew what they were doing with with um, once more around the sun, and like they, they had kept a very concise vision. I mean, video wise, things get really interesting. Like the motherload video of like the the massive <laughs> crowd of twerking women is 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 something else. Like I've heard, they, I don't want to delve into the argument there. I've heard a lot of defenses versus like annoyance of that video, but. They they clearly have that thing where they are now a band at a level where they have a big artistic budget to do something, and we didn't touch on it so much with the previous episode. Like I really love that they started doing more and more interesting videos for a lot of their stuff. Like I think that really kicked off in a big way. Actually, no, Sud is always kind of been the case. Like Leviathan has two excellent videos. Like uh, Blood Mountain has some great ones. Like this is a band who've always had good music videos, which. It's an art I, I really enjoy. I, I love seeing a strong music video, and this album had a lot of that. Like, like I've watched, despite not liking the song, I've watched the video for High Road about five times because it's a very good piece of art. I, I would argue, and I've I've watched three quarters of it. Um, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but there's like, I mean, I mean, they've sort of had some of this for a long time, and it's nice to see that sort of come back in full strength because you know the fantastic album artworks they've had, but the stage backdrops they've had as well, like, throughout this period, which I believe is done by the same guy who did the album artwork for The Hunter, the, like, original sculpture. Um, but seeing that come back in this way and have this multimedia presence is really nice because there are so many ideas and that they're, like, they have they don't have a style of music video, like Red Fang, for example. They have, like, it's so varied, it's completely different every time. You really don't know what you're going to get, and that's yeah, really Mastodon-y, because you don't really know what you're going to get in a Mastodon song. And I think playing into what will come up next, like, I like that they're a band who clearly have gone to good places with the fact they've got lots of money to throw at things. So what's about to happen post Once More Around the Sun is they're going to go off to a million and one interesting side projects, and there's loads of interesting art pops up that isn't quite Mastodon-themed, or stuff that's kind of adjacent. Um, but yeah, like, it's great that a band who have got this kind of time and money to truly focus every aspect of their life on the art seem to be doing so. 
Um, yeah, I think because I'm being shitty about it, I think, Finn, do you want the closing words on Once More Around the Sun? Yeah, I'd just say, you know, if, if anyone's listening who hasn't listened to these albums before, uh, or if you have listened to The Hunter and haven't heard this one, I think this album is basically everything that's good about The Hunter, but then sort of picking the good ideas and following them to their logical ends. But, uh, but you know, I appreciate that might not be everyone's uh, take on that. But yeah, I, I just think it's an incredibly, I wouldn't call it call it metal at all. I think it's an incredibly solid, slightly psychedelic rock album with it, with a lot of kind of sad emotional leanings. Motel, Fiend Without a Face. Um, there is like all the members of this bar of Mastodon Bar Bill will go off and start doing some really interesting like side projects. So one of the most like uh, kind of well um, well advertised or one that I definitely heard the buzz for when they came up was this this band which we're covering next is 2014 Killer Be Killed with their self titled debut Killer Be Killed which has a pretty legendary star-studded lineup of um, the vocalist of Dillinger Escape Plan doing vocals and also guitar, Max from Sepultura and Soulfly, vocals and guitar, Troy, bass and vocals, and Dave Illich of X the Mars Volta on drums. Um, 
playing a kind of, I guess, like hardcore groove metal, metalcore. No, metalcore is not fair, but like whatever Soulfly are doing, a bit of that as well. So, um, taking a bit, like, I took a bit of a broader look at them and looking at, like, both the 2014 and the 2020 album. Um, so formed back in 2011 by Dave Elledge, uh, and then getting this, like, star-studded cast in of fantastic musicians. It's a, it's a weird mix of sounds, uh, that ends up being this kind of, like, like, hardcore like, maybe melodic metal with a little bit of thrash in there as well every now and then. That, for me, at least on the first album, like, it's just not my genre. Like, I can't really get into it. There's some cool stuff. I think Troy's vocals are about as good as they've ever been on this. And, like, it's cool seeing some of these bellows and how he puts it into a really different context. And the three vocalists, again, kind of like Macedon, really cool. Um, Greg is an incredible clean singer and an amazing, like, harsh vocalist. Like, I mean, his work in Dillinger is incredible, but there's some great screams on this first album, Killer Be Killed, as well. Uh, and Max, Max, of course, is legendary. Um, he's got, like, a fantastic, like, proper gnarly growl. Um, and he's got some of these riffs which feel like, kind of, I don't know, budget thrash metal riffs. Um... But for me, it 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 never really becomes cohesive. I know a lot of people love this album, but for me, the clean poppy bits don't really work for me, um, and a lot of the like harsher bits just don't have the oomph that something like that really needs. Um, even like a band like Soulfly for me have like way more like weight and heft to them than some of the heavy bits here. Again, the bit I will say that's genuinely really good, Troy's vocals on this are great. Uh, and that's really cool to hear. Yeah, so it's a following one from Rob. My, the main thing I enjoyed is, again, was the playoff of the three different vocalists. Because, again, they all have different styles. I actually think it's, uh, I think, Greg Pusciato, if I'm pronouncing that right. Actually, his clean vocals actually do sound a bit like Brent as well. So I thought, you know, him having a trade-off with Troy works really well. It's also, it's, it's one of the best things I've heard from Matt's Cavalier in a while, as I'm not really a fan of most of the things he's in these days. Uh, but again, it's it's, it's not, I didn't enjoy it at all when it first came out, but giving it a re-listen for this podcast, I, I found it quite enjoyable. Although I did find that it, it was a bit front-loaded and that the, the last few tracks towards the end, I kind of lost my interest a bit. So I, I think it's, again, it's like, like Rob said, there's kind of elements of thrash and everything, and it's, it's quite enjoyable. It, it just feels a bit uh, like they didn't finish all their ideas. Although the last track, uh, I can't remember what it's called now, but it, it's similar to Zyman in the Witch House, actually, I think does end on a nice big doomy note, which I think is always, always a really cool way to finish yeah, an album. Yeah, Forbidden Fire, I think, is a really strong closer. So so in contrast to these two, I think Killer Be Killed, like going back to it, is actually a really good album. I I do, like that, obviously the, the front and centre thing is those three vocalists. Like Max is almost like renegated to, he's definitely third vocalist, but when he comes in, you fucking know it. Like his bits are my favourites, like, as a you know, long time Sepultura fan, and and honestly, someone who can dig a lot of Soulfly, like there is, not all their albums are great, but they do have strong moments every so often. Like he, um, his just voice coming in just makes me happy when that happens. The only issue I really have with this is Greg's real cleans. Like for the most part, he does these really like gnarly screams, kind of like his Dillinger screams, um, and they sound amazing. His cleans are where this this album flirts with metalcore. Uh, the like, the opening two tracks have the bit where they just go like, and now a clean chorus after the heavy bit. That's what I don't like. I actually think this album gets into its real stride 
where it gets experimental in the last five tracks. Stuff like IED um, and 12 Labours, like 12 Labours doing all that interesting stuff with these, like, basically just bass guitar for ages. Like, it's the most you've ever heard Troy Sanders play bass. It's the highest he has ever been in a mix. And as Rob said, I think Troy's vocals sound really good on this. I don't think this is in any way a truly groundbreaking album, but I think for four people who are such incredibly like accomplished musicians coming from their own projects where they you know, very much have their own sound, for that kind of melding of four people who could each like put their staple on something, I think they came out with something kind of coherent. Because I think the first six tracks kind of have an energy to it, and then the last five are where they're like, we're going to get weird now. And I, I kind of really like that. I, I like the... They, they they kept some experimentation in there, but had like a cohesive start to it at least. And yeah, it, it's it's not truly groundbreaking, but I think it's a really solid album. But yeah, I personally uh, going back to it, I really enjoyed this. debut Broken Lines from 2016 which is one of the myriad Brent projects with a hilariously kind of overlapping lineup of another member of Dillinger Escape Plan in the form of Ben Wyman and another ex-Mars Volta drummer in Thomas uh, Pridgen and then then rounded out by um, Alice in Chains vocalist William Duval and uh Pete Griffin of Zappa's play Zappa fame on bass. Um, yeah, so Rob, let's, uh, do you want to kick this one off? Um, so this is one that I didn't actually get round to another one of Brent's projects, which I just sort of got stuck in of like, damn, this guy's been doing a lot of weird things. Damn it, you, you were going to be the tiebreaker on this one. Finn, <laughs> all right, go for it. So uh, I, I've got to be honest, I did not really enjoy this at all. I, the, the main thing it takes out for me is that I think the vocalist uh, isn't really suited to the style of the music. I think his, his style doesn't really mesh with the, the, the riffs that have been written for this project. 
I mean, so, so I, I remember I first listened to this. So, in fact, I think it was with you, Phil. We watched the music video for uh, the title track, Broken Lines. I think that the main riff in that, I think, is actually very cool and very fun. I just think the vocals get in the way. They don't match the energy. Weirdly, um, uh, Greg, who is from Killer Be Killed and Dillinger, I think his style of vocals would have actually suited this project much better. Right, so in, in contrast to, to what Finn was saying, I, I think Giraffe Channel is really good. I And actually, for me, the highlight of it is, I think William Duval, like, obviously he fronts Alice in Chains, like, he's, he was the guy picked to replace, you know, such a legendary vocalist in that band. Um, he's clearly someone who can really fucking sing. And I, I've, I think he does absolutely incredible work on this, like, it, again, much like Killer Be Killed, it's not the most inventive thing ever, but there is so, like, I, I feel the execution of this is incredibly strong. Like, um, I, I, the, of, of the Brent projects, this is very, I, I think, the most focused. Um, and it, it kind of got me, like, right from the opener. Again, it has a problem I think a lot of these have of it's kind of front-loaded, like, Adapt or Die, No One Is Innocent, Blood Moon, all really brilliant tracks. And with some quite great variations, like uh, Adapt or Die and No One Is Innocent are qu quite intense, whereas Blood Moon is this really kind of, like, more mellow, sinister track. But I think that combination of this real, like, bombastic rock vocal with these more kind of metallic, slightly progressive riffing... Like, but metallic like progressive in the Dillinger escape plan, progressive not in the, you know, not dream theater kind of widdly sense. I, I, I think it works really well and actually throws up something quite unique with his kind of vocal approach. And actually throws in something I don't believe he throws in with Alice in Chains too much. So he actually gets quite harsh and aggressive in places with his vocals. But yeah, um, for, um, for for me, I think this album really works. And it's got some like really weird moments like the track Fragments and Ashes switches back and forth between cheesy classic rock and grindy punk, just verse to verse. Like and it I I felt that like the fact they could capture that in one song was really interesting. I yeah, I, I honestly Finn, I, I'm amazed that you're kind of like, oh yeah, the vocals I... don't fit this because <laughs> like with Bran being over Mastodon, or you know, a heavy band, essentially. Yeah, I'm not sure what it is. Something about it just didn't didn't click for me. I mean, maybe I should go away and give it another listen. But I just, I just kind of felt like the vocals were a barrier of entry for me. Yeah, whereas for me they were the instant hook. Whereas like I was listening to this and going, oh, "That's cool," and then just every so often like, oh, "Bloody hell, that vocalist!" Like, yes. Yeah, so I have to drop in the really interesting fact about this band: of William Duval was not the original vocalist. The original vocalist is Juliette Lewis. Yes, that one from the movies. Uh, like, I have, off the top of my head, Natural Born Killers and From Dusk Till Dawn. Um, and she is on the album. She does backing vocals on Back to the Light. Uh, that is her voice. And she has a more kind of like, uh, she's got more of a punky voice. Like, she she's less of a... Yeah, I, I kind of want to see the alternative universe where she was the lead vocalist for the whole album. It would have given it a very different flavour for sure, I think. Oh, yeah. Also, uh, as we mean on a kick of talking about music videos, the music video for Blood Moon is extremely intense, but if you've got a strong stomach, well worth a look. I, I thought it was really fun. Yeah, I agree. Great music video. Very uncomfortable. Also, the, 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 it's a lot very whiplash-inducing from the very sudden change in style when it kind of reveals what it's really doing. <laughs> 
yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's just another one of those, like, that. that's a good, if you were taking it as a three-minute kind of film, that is a cool piece of art in, in my book. We walked on From the same year gone is gone with a self-titled gone is gone uh um again a 2016 album following in the theme of killer be killed with the first word repeated around a, a connective word hence why for quite a long time i thought these two bands were the same band <laughs> um yes yeah, so finn do you want to kick us off uh explain who gone is gone gone is gone are yeah, so it's very yeah. So so basically, gone is gone is a a, a side project. So it's Troy from Mastodon, uh, Troy from Queens of the Stone Age. I think I think they literally just thought, oh, we're both called Troy. Let's start a band together. Also, uh, someone from At the Drive In as well. I think the drummer. So yeah. um, so yet again, another Mars Volta adjacent drummer in this side project <laughs> because there's no other drummers available. It's just all Mars Volta guys. So so yeah. So this one, it's very um. Very, very cold and very kind of sad and atmospheric. So this one, funnily enough, I, I, I would consider this an album because it's eight songs for totaling 31 minutes. Uh, it's considered an EP, which which I find strange because I think, you know, I mean, Rain and Blood's a full album. That's only 28. And I think this is, uh, you know, I think tracks, I think tracks five and six are also kind of interludes rather than full songs. I think you wouldn't really put interludes on an EP, I wouldn't think. It's a it's a debate for like another podcast, but I, yeah. I like I'm always very interested with the the kind of dispute between where an album starts and where an ep is because a lot of people write off eps despite the fact pleiades dust by gorguts is longer than rain in blood like <laughs> <laughs> yeah well and this is longer than rain in blood as well but uh yeah so this i it, it's it's one of these things where it's a band that 
I mean, obviously, you know, Mastodon and Queens of Stone Age being my personal two favourite bands. I think I wanted to like this a lot more than I did. Uh, I listened to it when it came out and didn't enjoy it at all. And revisiting it for this podcast, that it's something, especially the second track, Starlight, that there is something very hopeless and, and quite sad about it. It's very empty, which I found I thought was very moving, actually. But, but it still feels like a band who's kind of trying to figure themselves out. And, and at the time of writing, I hadn't listened to their, um, their actual, what, what I would call their second album, but which actually is their first album, as this is the EP. And I kind of hoped that they'd take some of the, the things I really liked about this, like the kind of emptiness and the focus on atmosphere rather than sound necessarily, and push that through to the album. But I, I don't know, what do you guys think? Yeah, so I, I I equally really like Starlight. I think that's a great song. Um, and the chorus, like, again, Troy's vocals going from strength to strength, doing different things with, like... Because, you know, Troy doesn't have the biggest range of singers that we look at them, but the, th- the different things he can do within different, like, feelings of music is really impressive, and the chorus of Starlight's great for that. I do like the use of keys in this and how they add this kind of, like like really melancholic but very minimalist atmosphere to the album and yeah i i agree that there's yeah there's this sense of sadness to it that's really poignant but it you know it it hasn't it hasn't quite got something like i appear missing from queens of the stone age or something it hasn't quite distilled that feeling into its purest sense yet yeah so listeners at this point we're probably all getting a bit drunk and fighty uh so my opinion (laughs) on gone is gone i'll keep short of it sounds like bad bits of Queens of the Stone Age mixed with bad bits of Mastodon, and it left me incredibly cold. Oh, but but for, for a fanboy such as myself, I'll take it. So, <laughs> yeah. so it, it, it's perfectly competent. Like, there's nothing ostensibly wrong with it. But on two listings of this, I could not tell you anything about it in hindsight. It just... It was one of those albums that just washed over me and went, oh, that bit was a bit mastodon that bit. Like, you can very much hear the two Troy's influences on certain riffs. And it just, yeah, I I didn't latch on. I didn't even get what you guys are getting from Starlight. So maybe I need to revisit that. Maybe there's something wrong with me on that front. To be fair, I would say Starlight is, is the one song that I would say is actually a really good song that I will, you know, add to playlists and listen to in the future. The rest of it does sound like a band who's kind of finding their feet and I would hope would go on to do better things. Although I, I'm kind of stuck with it, you know, I mean, all I want is a Queens of Stone Age Mastodon supergroup. Although I think what I actually want is I want Josh Homme and Brent Hines to be in a band together. Not not the two Troys. But... That sounds like fucking chaos. Exactly. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I'd agree. I think Starlight is by far, like, the standout of this. But, I mean, one of the things I do think is pretty cool about it is um, there's some really nice drum grooves uh, in this. Uh, like again, quite subtle playing, but really different to what you'd hear in Queens, and really different to what you'd hear in Mastodon. There's some cool, like funky grooves going on where they they like double up the hi hat speed. There's a bit of that in Starlight that I actually thinks really cool. That in a really minimalistic way reframes the music that you're hearing. Um, so I just thought that was a really nice little thing and something that you don't hear in either of the like projects. That brings us up to 2017 with the final so far Mastodon album number seven, Emperor of Sands, um, which, you know, obviously same lineup still, but was certainly them trying to recapture a bit of the golden years, I think, um, or, or like the, the, their kind of popular period, like trying to get heavy again. Because I forgot to mention during the Hunter phase of... Um, during that, uh, Brent very much pulled a pestilence in which he pissed off all his existing fans by going on a long rant about how like metal isn't very good and he's never actually liked it, blah, blah, blah. 
I mean, Pestilence <laughs> did the same thing with jazz. He did it with blues. Um, and then, like, backtracked and then put out quite a metallic album. Uh, <laughs> like, in in the form of Emperor Sand. So, yeah, I think, uh, Finn, as the, like, you were massively into the last album. Where did you stand on Emperor Sands? So Emperor of Sand, it's it's a bit of a difficult one for me because I, I still it's an album I'll listen to you know once every few months and when I listen to it I still very much enjoy it and I, I maintain that Roots Remain is absolutely one of Mastodon's best songs. That is that is one of those things that's just from the ground up perfect in every single respect. Although I, I would, it's kind of sad to say this. It's the one of the of the main seven Mastodon albums. It's the only one I wouldn't consider essential. I think it's like like you said how they uh you know so Brendan O'Brien who is also the producer of Crack the Sky uh, is the producer of this one as well and I was immediately a bit worried when they said oh we're going to get the guy who did Crack the Sky because I think that doesn't sound like you doing I mean you know, we've all talked about the Hunter and Once More Around the Sun but at least they were always moving forward this is the first time it felt like they were going actually let's try and do what we did before and I think I, I think they're sort of band that I want them to, even if it fails I'd much rather them try something new I think the fact that they tried to recapture something just fails a bit and it's it's the only album where there are songs that I, entire songs that I just kind of want to skip. Like I think things like Precious Stones and um, Word to the Wise are all songs that I think just get in the way. There are some fantastic songs on this album. I know we mentioned Show Yourself earlier, which is a, another straight up pop song, but very, very good one. And Roots Remain and the last track, Jaguar God, is absolutely fucking insane. But I just, it, I kind of feel like you have to get through some other songs to get to the really good bits and that's a feeling I've never had with a Mastodon album before I think there's quite a lot of truth in that and to me it feels like a summation of a lot of Mastodon's parts like it's a greatest hits that isn't a greatest hits um, and for me I actually kind of really like that uh, and I feel it's got some amazing high points uh, I think like the best vocals they've done on one of their albums Roots Remain as you mentioned Brand's vocals on that are phenomenal like it's such a huge high point um, the guitar solos on Jaguar God are incredible um but yeah for me it brings together a lot of stuff like it's got a little bit of the heaviness and a bit of discordance on songs like andromeda it's got the really catchy stuff on things like show yourself it's got the huge sprawling bits of jaguar god which sort of reminiscent back to crack the sky and then it's got the really heartfelt bits of roots remain so to me it kind of i'd agree it's not essential like it sums up a lot of the other stuff that mastodon have done into kind of one package um but for me, I, I really like that package. Like, it's a really fun thing to me to listen to. And it captures a lot of cool stuff that they've done, but doesn't, like, it's not approaching the heights that some of the other things, like, got. I don't know. I'm probably more echoing Finn than Rob, but I think we're going to disagree on certain bits of it. Like, for me, Emperor of the Sand, uh, Emperor of Sand um, falls between two stools. Like, the, the kind of trying to go heavy in places, but including those big, brand clean vocal choruses are where it kind of falls down like starting off i really don't like this album so i know i know you two are both big into it i don't like show yourself at all it's again it's it's him doing a pop song and i i I don't think his voice is good enough to carry like a whole pop song in fact like but it is an album like when re-listening to it for this i was like getting more and more like oh i'm not sure about this but then it picks up at the end and the end's really really good like the last 20 minutes like well not 20 minutes like 15 minutes like oh that's all the best bits to me like the the kevin sharp guest uh guest vocals um on andromeda sound fucking amazing getting that really harsh voice like the guy from brutal truth coming in bringing things full circle because brutal truth's current or guitarist up to the point where they called it quits was on the Lethargy album with with the guys. 
So there's a nice, a nice like kind of symmetry of that involvement there. Um, and as everyone's mentioned, Jaguar God is fantastic. Roots remains really good. But the problem for me is all the kind of once more around the sun moments. Like they kind of like went, oh, we're going to go heavier with this, but then didn't for lots of it. They're just like, oh, bits of it heavy, bits of it are Queens of Stone Age influences. Like it, it felt as all over the place as the Hunter feels in, in my mind, where it's just there's a pop song on it but then there's jaguar god like they, those feel like two different projects and and what i really want for a mass song album i haven't really had since crap the sky possibly once more in the sun has this actually but i want cohesion i want something that feels like something you've really thought about it that really flows and to my mind this feels like as rob said a greatest hits collection i think one thing that's quite interesting about this like um so the story of it is um it's about a wanderer trapped in the desert who meets the emperor of sands who then tells him that he is going to die at some point soon but it but he doesn't know when and if you look through the album i've seen some interesting discussion about this online about the theme of this album being time um there's a lot of moments if you look in the chorus of precious stone for example like it's all about like time is mentioned a lot on this album and the idea of wasting it and when your time will be up um so i think that's a really interesting idea and if we pair that with the idea of this reflecting on all sorts of bits of mastodon's catalog like it's like the band doing an album which is in itself a self-reflection on this period of time that they've been around in and taking bits from all of it and pulling together and i and i kind of like that like for me that kind of works but i can fully appreciate that like it's not a, ma- a huge statement and this conceptual work that they've done before and, and like you know it's for me it's nowhere near as good as that but i just quite like that as a reflective approach yeah i, I think it's worth saying that um I, mean, I don't know if everyone knows this but obviously um uh, just before the album uh, came out when they were writing it um bill's mum died of cancer so the whole album is, is kind of more or less about you know sort of cancer i think troy's wife was diagnosed with cancer as well so 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 basically the, yeah like you're saying rob about you know being told that your time is up it's kind of to do with people who you know suffering from cancer or, or you know how much it can affect uh, you know people's lives uh, so even though i think this album is is a bit sort of i wouldn't call it subpar but something's missing from it i think it's still worth noting that it's not like you know when you listen to a new metallica album it's just they just shat something out so they could put it on the shelves and collect their fucking paycheck uh, <laughs> this this is still you know even though i think it, it's missing something this still is very much something that they've put thought and time into and and, and you know it's genuine and expressive i i just think that they, they weren't maybe they weren't all on the same page i mean my understanding which again is probably speculation is i don't think brent was very involved with the making of this at all because even if you look at the behind the studio uh, behind the scenes videos uh, the the other three were kind of very involved as he's just fucking around because i think he was more thinking about cold dark place and he had also had a million side projects this year so i'm wondering if uh, maybe brent's absence was affected it in some way from the behind the scenes stuff as well so the lyrics to roots remain which i think is the standout of the album um were written like about uh sort of bill's experiences of his mum getting cancer so like yeah like this has that thing of what maston have done before where they've taken like real world hardship that they've experienced and they've reflected on it like as a group as friends and they've put that into something and i think that's you know one of the reasons why some of those bits are just so heartfelt and powerful
so that brings us on um same year and something I, I feel a lot of people totally miss this one and again it's it, it comes back to what i say about eps is i truly believe eps are the point where a band should experiment and try a new sound if they're gonna try something really fucking different do it on an ep make it not part of your main catalog and you know you let fans know this is us doing something out in the wilderness and I think that's what Mastodon did with 2017's Cold Dark Place, a 20-minute-long four-track EP, which, for my money, is the best music this band had put out in the preceding five years. I, I think Cold Dark Place is an absolutely incredible statement, start to finish. This amazing kind of... It's very mellow, it's very introspective, but it's... When I say mellow, it's not poppy. It's It's like this kind of... I guess more borrowing from possibly folk rock and post rock. Um, lots of ideas with, with touches of kind of dark blues. And they never let, like, sort of, they never give Bran a bombastic chorus. They never start yelling on it or anything like that. It's all this very subtle, kind of minimalistic. I think Rob actually mentioned this earlier of the Sparrow being a kind of primer for for this ep and if you like that track from the hunter yeah this is kind of more of that yeah it has that completely different emotional feel to it and it it feels so consistent which is weird because finn mentioned this like three of the songs are from the once more around the sun sessions and one's from emperor of sands um so it's really strange that that actually comes together to like form something that feels more cohesive than anything since crack the sky uh, and there's some really, again, vocals on this, like Macedon have got so good at this. Um, thinking about songs like Blue Wash, the difference between um, Bran versus Brent, like, and how they carry slightly different emotions when they go through. And then, like, when the faster riff comes in, having Troy come in and carry that difference, they've got really good at using their different vocal styles to carry what in this place are fairly subtle differences in emotion during the songs but they've learned how to do that really well their songwriting at this stage is just fantastic yeah i agree i mean so i'll talk about the last song which is the title track in a second but i feel like uh, the first two tracks are all very muted and you know even though they're, they're still complex and, and ch it's challenging there's a lot going on but it all still feels very low-key and not kind of particularly loud or active uh, but then something I find really interesting is that the, the last track, Cold Dark Place, I and mean, obviously we've discussed before, you know, Mastodon put a lot of their own sort of personal tragedies into the music, but they always tend to cover it with concepts and they all become sort of allegorical and uh, metaphorical. Whereas if you read the lyrics to the song Cold Dark Place, there's no metaphor. It's just Brent saying, oh, you know, this breakup was horrible. You know, she took my dog. I'm really depressed. And it's it's very weird hearing them go from shrouding everything in, in like in a story to cover the truth to hearing like really naked, honest uh, lyrics. And that, that, that last song called that place is fucking fantastic. Especially because there's the last song on the EP. It, it actually feels like the whole EP just builds up to the last bit of the song where all of the, the, the muted kind of withheld stuff suddenly just, they just fucking kick in and that heavy riff comes in. He just solos. It's just, it's like a fucking explosion that has been building throughout the entire four songs. Really, yeah, really well done. That when that like when the distorted com the guitar comes in with that kind of like doom riff and then the lead kicks in at the end of the album it's, or end of the EP yeah it just feels this perfect journey the four songs flow so well together and to suddenly have this catharsis of the big heavy bit at the end yeah it, it's it's absolutely yeah wonderfully executed it, like I think if you've missed this along the way like Cold Dark Place is some of the most focused 
sounding stuff I, I think they've put out in a really long time it is so it like almost could just be one song like this one like little 20 minute piece yeah and there's there's cool variation stuff as well like on a north side star you get some funky groove and a tambourine over the top of it with this cool like sort of sliding guitar pattern it's like that's really cool they also bring in some like country like sort of country licks at some points which fits nicely with that sort of blues influence so they're using a lot of the techniques that they've built up through this like second period of mastodon and bringing it together into something that as phil says is really focused yeah, again, yeah, we, we've talked a lot about uh, album covers as well. The album cover of this is absolutely fantastic. Absolutely sells the tone of the music, where it's all kind of brittle and, and dark and, and enclosed. Again, I, I, did, I think they just always have amazing album artists just on tap, apparently. Yeah, this is one of the stronger... Like, uh, like I think this is a much better cover than um, Emperor of Sand. Like, this this cover, they're very evocative. Very doesn't feel like them as well, like... If it didn't have the Mastodon name on it, I could totally picture this being a completely different band. Like, there is something very alien for them about this. And it is that thing, as I talk about VPs, it's uncharted territory. And I really like that they they felt they could, like, sort of dip their toe in something odd like this. I was going to say, Phil, I mean, I actually remember you made this comment at the time uh, when it came out. I think for a lot of people, I mean, obviously, I, I like the newest stuff. But I think a lot of people who had been burned by The Hunter and then Once More Around the Sun. And then Emperor of Sandy thought... Okay, they've now done three albums I don't really like. Maybe they're not the band for me anymore. I think this, being something so different, brought a lot of people to think, actually, no, they are still a band worth worth paying attention yeah, to. Yeah, it's, it's certainly true for me, because I, I, I wasn't, I, I wouldn't say burnt by those albums, but I, I didn't truly love any of those following three. But this, this is something on regular rotation for me. I think it's a truly great EP. Fiend Without a Face's self-titled, I guess, debut proper. I think the first is officially a split. 
Uh, Finn, do you want to introduce this one? Uh, yeah, so this is, uh, I mean, given the fact it's self-titled, which uh, with a lot of the bands on this list actually is normally a thing you do for your first official release, I'd assume this is the first album. Weirdly, the first thing I'd like to note is uh, if you listen to the track Seabreeze, has the riff from The Hunter in it, and not just one of the riffs, like the whole progression of the riff. So this thing's what I thought, oh, this sounds really familiar. In fact, incredibly familiar. So, so I'm not sure, I mean, so we didn't mention it when we talked about The Hunter, but um, uh, the, the album is called The Hunter because um, during the making of the album, Brent Hines' brother died of a heart attack while on a hunting trip. So, so I'm wondering if just because that melody is obviously, you know, I guess attributed to his brother, he was kind of bringing that element back in. But yeah, I, I thought this was really good. I thought it was, it was a lot more, um, it was a bit more varied and a lot more focused than the first album or, or the first release, as you might call it. Uh, I think it's obviously Brent, he's, he went from sh- doing all of his kind of weird shrieks uh, on the first album to actually singing on this one. But on this, he really, really leans into the, the, the country twang that he has in his voice. And the song that really stood out for me was um, Hopper Train. It just—it's this very kind of cheeky, uh, bluesy country feeling to it. I actually really enjoyed this one. So I—I I listened to like a couple of bits from this. This is the one that, like, yesterday I was like, "Oh shit, I've got to listen to all of Brent Hines' projects." Um, I do—I do quite like the like kind of weird, scratchy guitar tone on this. I think that's kind of really cool and fits really nicely. And it's not something you hear within Mastodon at all. Like Mastodon is so much like bigger and chunkier and have so much more power to them it was really cool hearing that that energy and matched with like this sort of like kind of almost punky in some places drums like had a real drive to it which was really cool yeah so for me i I was disappointed by this one because i I really liked that kind of twisted carnival energy of the debut like as i say there was moments of the debut where i was like this almost feels like it could be the cardiacs there is nothing on this that feels like it could be that. Like, it's it is more... It's probably more focused. It feels less like free people making horrible music in the garage. But it, it's... Yeah, it, it's it's lost the horror for me. Whereas the, the, the first, that Split album they put out was kind of scary. This isn't scary. And... I, that that was the the edge of this I really like. So yes, yeah, sadly the self-titled it, it wasn't for me. The next release is the first full length from West End Motel, and we're going to take Fumper's mother's advice and move on to the first release of Gone Is Gone. Uh, well, so a second, well, first full length album. Um, e- Echo Location. That's it. <laughs> Dyslexia. It's it's a, it's a long word. <laughs> um, yeah, Echo Location. The first the first full length proper from gone is gone so rob uh, i imagine this is one you've listened to right yeah so um again for me it doesn't have uh, so thinking about the first gone is gone album starlight was a huge standout for me honestly to me this feels like a little bit more of the same like i really like some of the ideas behind here i like the way they use keyboards i really like the drums on this i think the drums are really simplistic but really effective particularly in the way they'll switch up the grooves and do some really funky stuff i really like that um but it didn't have a huge standout moment for me like starlight was on the first uh well the first album the ep yeah, so, so with this one, I you know, given that the first uh, release was an EP, I thought, okay, well, good. Well, maybe they're going to take the things I like and be a lot more full with the second one. Honestly, I was actually, I felt quite let down by this. I feel like the opening track, which I think is called Sentient, I, I was really excited when that started because it's very slow and very deliberate. And I thought, holy shit. And I saw the album, I think it's about 55 minutes long. I thought, fuck, I, I really felt like it was going to build to something fantastic. I feel like it never really did anything with the momentum that it was leading to. And I actually felt like uh, it, the album really begun to drag after a while. It wasn't, 
because the first album, well, sorry, the first EP was very compact because of its short length. I feel like this one didn't really earn the runtime that it was going for. Although there is a there's a song called Resurge, uh, which Troy has a fantastic bass tone on. I thought it's the first time you really get to hear him playing, which sounded really good. But yeah, I really feel like they they, they failed to capitalize on the on the things that I really liked about the EP. Okay, so at this point, a rare agreement for me. Yeah, uh, th- this one, like I felt it was a step up from the first. Like I think that first track it comes in with a bit that sounds like a proper like Isis or Cult of Luna moment. This really heavy. Um, like really heavy tone for a part moving into a very post-rock part quite smoothly doing that that first track has some really good stuff to it but then the rest of the album sort of meanders between this kind of like post-rock super heavy kind of somewhere in the middle and at the very extreme bits it's kind of great but every time it drifts back towards the middle it gets boring again and there's not enough of those extremes and the transitions aren't perfect. So uh, honestly, this felt like a band of very seasoned musicians trying their hand at that kind of cult of lunar sound and failing because it's a genre that's very hard to do with a lot of bands have already near enough perfected it. And I think trying your hand at this point in time, you, you just need to be stronger than this is like go listen to one of those bands I've referenced. Like, th- this will not quite live up to that. I echo your sentiments, Phil. And like you said, Rob, uh, those Starlight, for me, was such a standout from the first uh, first release. I feel like there's no point on this album that had that immediate, enjoyable quality. Which is a shame, because I know they've got another album coming out later this year, uh, I think possibly in a few months, so they, obviously they just missed the podcast cut-off. And I'll give it a listen, because I like there's a band that I think have potential to really be good. I just think they, they didn't find it with this with this album. Yeah, I think that's right. Like, yeah, just coming away from it, it's like, like, there was some stuff that was good, but there was nothing like with the first album that I came away going like, man, I keep getting that chorus stuck in my head. Like, the, like, muted sadness of that was so powerful, and there wasn't a moment on this which had that much emotional weight. All right, so that brings us to the final release, Mastodon Related, from 2017, the fifth album and sixth release, if you include the EP. Uh, this is uh, Brandela's first solo pro- uh, sort of solo project, separate kind of side project from Mastodon, uh, Arcadia, with their self-titled Arcadia, um, which is a really interesting thing of Bran and a couple, uh, two people who are credited as guitarists doing kind of synth pop synth metal yeah so one of the guys um it's core atoms and raheem al amblani uh one of them i think played in gaylord back in the day when brown was in that as well and both guitarists who are just playing synths um and they've talked about being you know quite heavily inspired by stevie wonder genesis and other 70s prog bands and i think this like I kind of really like this. Um, I I'm a, quite a big fan of synth pop, synth pop, and synth wave and stuff like that. And I really like how in a lot of this part, it really sounds like a synth is playing a guitar part. Like that's just a really fun idea. It's quite short. It's to the point. Uh, I do like Brown's vocals on this. Again, great drums. Uh, yeah, just a really fun idea. Yeah, I, I absolutely love this record. I, I listen to this a couple of times a month. Uh, again, when it first came out, I think because uh, there have been so many releases in that year, I, I didn't really like it at first, but eventually I kept listening. And I guess because it's such a different style being entirely synthy, and I don't listen to any music in that kind of genre normally. But uh, yeah, it's because the high focus on melody, I find this every single song has something catchy about it. 
And I feel like it really builds. And the this well, I think the third to last track through the eyes of Pisces is the song that I normally uh, plays people to get them into this band because there's something. I mean, again, it's probably a theme of the things I like about uh, this era of Mastodon. But it, I find it so sad, and the effect on the vocals it just feels very hopeless. I mean, again, this is also a concept album. It's something about. Uh, an order of planets trying to organize some sort of democratic thing across planets and it, it's something i can't really wrap my head around but yeah it, again it feels like an album with a, with a really solid through line through it and, and also it does something which i really like where there are, i can't remember which names of the songs but they play riffs from uh from one song uh but then when something goes wrong they play the same riff but in a in a in a minor key later on which like pays off a few tracks later and that's something i just really enjoy in music yeah so this is one i i sort of struggled with because i'm just not the biggest synth pop fan i I've given it time and realised I'm a total fucking philistine of I struggle to enjoy much music that doesn't feature guitar. And the <laughs> yeah, yeah, so so take any opinion on this with a pinch of salt. But it's stuff on this the the, the kind of bits that I really struggled with, stuff like uh, the track Gas Giant just sounded too kind of computer gamey for me. It felt too kind of um rooted in that kind of like chip tune synth pop kind of thing and when it gets really kind of out of hand and like all over the place it's like, I, I don't really get that there's moments i enjoyed more like uh neptune's moons where it's got the the guest uh guest singer on it like she sounds really cool and it actually reminded me of like moments of azure remote but it never descends into death metal later on but like those bits i quite liked but as a whole, it they, uh, honestly just out of my depth. I, I don't get synth pop, so I'm I'm not gonna love this. One of the things I really liked about it is because of the completely different style and the different pace of the music, it gives Bran a chance to play drums like he never has before. The kinds of fills that he does on this are completely different. Like, it's got some of the signatures, but he does some cool stuff, like, with the hi-hat and the snare instead of just rolling on the snare, and some cool little, like, syncopated fills, which could never fit in Mastodon or any of the other projects, but, like, go really well here. So it's really cool to see Bran, like, flexing his creative muscles with a different genre and i guess i mean i i think something about the fact that it's two synths as well that they, they very rarely fall into the thing of playing the same thing at the same time it always feels like there's two things playing off against each other and i guess i feel i mean i appreciate you sort of called it uh, chaotic i really enjoy that it means like the whole way through there's always there's always different things you can focus your attention on and ever kind of just settles into one groove
brings us to the only 2018 release for the band, I think after the, the sort of dalliances with a lot of solo projects and side projects. Um, the, the Well, there's no solo projects, entirely side projects, I misspoke there. But I think the band then really focused on touring. Like, I remember both me and Finn saw them live at Bloodstock um, in 2018, I believe. Like, uh, they were definitely playing live a lot as a band. Although Mastodon wouldn't, they, they they haven't put out a new album since. But there is one one side project that comes out in this point in time, and this is uh, Legend of the Seagold Men with their self titled Legend of the Seagold Men, which is another star studded lineup. And they managed to find a different drummer for the Mars Volta. Um, they actually got Danny <laughs> Carey of Tool involved for this one. It's yet another Brent Hines project. Um, it uh, features Jimmy Hayworth of Joan Hex on guitar. Um, Dave the Dr. Dreyer on vocals, who I don't really know his history. Uh, Peter Griffin is is back. Um, not the Family Guy character, the Zappa, play, <laughs> Zappa bass player. Uh, yeah, uh, for like this, this this rounded out lineup of of an album doing this sort of like piratey themed rock. Um, I'm going to throw it to Rob to like, what did you think of Legend of the Seagull Men? So... To mention as well, coming full circle with Jimmy Hayward, the director who Mastodon scored a film for way back, comes in and plays guitar on this album, which is really weird, but quite a cool thing. Um, So it's like, it's kind of messy and fun, like rock and roll with like these psychedelic moments. It's like, there's a lot of moments which are very chaotic and there's a lot of stuff going on. There's a lot of noise, a lot of things fighting with each other. Um, and then it's got some quiet, doomy moments, like on The Fogger, which is, like, much slower and more brooding. Um, I quite like it. I don't know if I love it. Um, like, it's got moments where it kind of loses me a little bit in the mess, but other moments where I think, actually, this mess is kind of cool. And then it will have slow moments where I'm like, actually, this is really fun. I like this. I like this, like, building sense of anticipation. So it's a bit of a mixed bag, but I like a lot of the ideas that are there. Yeah, I, th- I think this is an album that I, I want to come back to a, a bit more because I, I feel like there's definitely something there that I haven't quite got my head around yet. I mean, so some tracks I listen to, like I think it's a track called Ship's Wreck, which I immediately found very mesmerizing. I'm not sure what it is, but there's something that just really pulls you into it and you get a really thick sense of atmosphere. Uh, again, it's it, yeah, it's a bit all over the place. And, and considering the, the people involved, I think I was expecting something quite different to what I got. But something that really jumped out to me is for something that's very clearly highly conceptual. Uh, in the song Rise of the Giant, they kind of shamelessly take the riff from Seek and Destroy by Metallica. And they play it again and again, the da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And they keep playing it. And I was like, wow, they've, they've somehow taken a riff, which they, which they obviously know that they've taken. It's not like they're stealing it or anything. Uh, but they still somehow managed to turn it into their own thing. And I found that really interesting. So for me, I, I have kind of, yeah, very involved opinions on this. I think much like Finn. Um, the band, to my ears, they sound like... Somewhere the core of their sound, for the most part, is this somewhere between Orange Goblin and Clutch. This kind of like blues infused, but like slightly metallic, slightly rocky kind of sound. But then moments where the vocals get really interesting and go like almost into the Earls of Mars territory to use an extremely obscure reference. Um, And those bits I love. Bits I really don't like are like the there's a long track in the middle of the album, uh, "Curse of the Red Tide," which feels very much like a Disney Pirates of the Caribbean take on because the whole thing is pirate themed. If we hadn't uh, mentioned that already, it feels very like Disney doing an epic bit, and it's 
honestly like embarrassing like those bits i just don't don't get at all but first three tracks of this album the fogger uh ship's wreck as finn says ship's wreck is fucking brilliant it is such a well-realized song and i wish the whole album sounded like that and didn't do what it does in the second half like the first half of this album for me i think is really really good what's funny as well is finn was like saying how he was expecting a different album they fucking sold everyone a different album a quote from the band's website this is the first thing you see on the page the legend of the seagull men is a genre destroying destroying supergroup Fuck you, you're a blues band. (laughs) 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 I don't know how to follow up from that. Yeah, I've somewhat derailed myself there. Uh, the, the point being, though, is the guys from Mastodon Tool get together and go, we're going to be a genre-destroying supergroup and play some rock songs. With yeah, a pirate. Yeah. Like, we're and a Metallica really thinking about, like, 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 Danny Carey on drums, like, a phenomenal drummer. And, like, honestly, you could have had someone else. <laughs> and I don't think people would have noticed. Like they they don't throw in like like loads of bits where in like a weird modulation of seven four and seven eight the summer and like, there's none of that like there is nothing of tool in this this is Danny Carey just providing a solid backbone and as I say I I love those first three songs I just hate the pretension they sold this band with it's like if you sold it as something like kind of fun and silly if you'd sold it like the Earls of Mars sold themselves like that kind of like you know, it's it's all a bit like weird and wonderful, but essentially it's just good rock. That's great. That that works so well. And and the album's got a long tail to it. The first twenty minutes are really good, and then it gets a bit messy. I I, I really would advise anyone to go out and listen to Ship's Wreck. Though it's a genuinely brilliant song, but it's a brilliant song in the way something off Clutch's Blast Tyrant is brilliant. It's not truly groundbreaking. It's just like. No, these guys are just nailing a fucking rock song, and the pirate theme really fits here. I mean, to be fair, you know, if you go listen to music about pirates, I think I'm not sure I listen to this in Ailstorm because it's not quite as uh, a. <laughs> it, 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 it doesn't wink at the camera in such a like really strong way, but it, it is still very very silly. Yeah, I, I think pirates are a, 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 still a great theme for metal. Like Running Wild is still a very good band. I mean, I have strong opinions on Ailstorm that I won't won't go into here but yeah I, I don't think i don't think pirates should be written off for the reason of like you can sing about pirates without being ailstorm and i think it i think it works here quite well it just i just wish they didn't try to be so genre bending like as i say the bits where they feel like they're doing the pirates of the caribbean theme music don't work for me but the bits where they're trying to be more more kind of classic rocky i, I think have got a real cool edge to them Okay, so from this point on, there's not a lot of releases to speak of. I mean, we're coming up very close to the present day. But something I feel can't go uncommented on in a podcast about later Mastodon is um, Mastodon's live at the K-Pit tiny dive bar show with Scott Kelly singing all the Scott Kelly songs. Like, it is the whole Scott Kelly set, right? Uh, The only song they're missing is uh, the one from... 
I can't remember. I mean, it's, it's missing one of them, but other than that, that's one of the songs that he's done. But yeah, it, it's a really well shot, well, like the sound's really well captured, all up on YouTube, free to watch, like an hour-long set of Mastodon rocking out in front of like a hundred people in a tiny dive bar. It's fucking great. It's it's so different, because we didn't really touch on Mastodon's live show. What Mastodon are now live, for the most part, is this amazing... They work so... So many people I know don't like Mastodon live because they've seen them at a festival slot in the middle of the day. And Mastodon aren't really that band most of the time. They're a band where, because their music is so complex, they've got to stand very still. It's quite a stilted set in many ways because they've just got to play what they're going to play. But if you see them at night, like me and Finn saw them headlining a festival in the dark... Their big banners come out, their big like display screens. They have amazing visualizations to go along with the music, and you can just get into the atmosphere, and just really enjoy what the show is for the the kind of overall spectacle. It's more of a like it, there's a the whole visual art element to it. It's amazing. And in the middle of the day, they often suffer because their visual art bit falls a bit flat, whereas a headline set it doesn't. This feels like a moment where they finally got the hang of being that, like, underground grind band again. Like, this isn't grind, but they were just, like, just fucking rocking in a small venue because they didn't have to handle all the vocal duties. Yeah, and Brian didn't have a microphone at all. Scott Kelly's presence was, like, so powerful. Like, like he was barely doing anything. He was sitting there holding the microphone and was just, like, fully in the moment. And then he just releases this incredible voice and these ridiculous screams and... You know, like, they were all crammed into this tiny corner as well, which was amazing. Like, Troy was having to stand behind, like, the three of them at the front and was doing his vocals, not even looking at the crowd because that's the only way they could fit the microphone in. And there was something so endearing about a band who have been so big for ages, crammed into a tiny corner, but playing their hearts out. And again, it's also, the, the by virtue of Scott Kelly being there, I think no matter what you think of the albums, whenever Scott Kelly is on a song, it's pretty much guaranteed to be a really good song. So, because I think the whole thing, it must be only about what, half an hour, maybe 40 minutes, the, the whole set. But yeah, every single song is fantastic. They play really, really well. In fact, Brian actually uh, breaks his snare halfway through in the middle, I think, just from hitting it too hard. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, and then, and then they actually finish on Blood and Thunder, which obviously uh, Scott Kelly doesn't do vocals on. But he, he does the, the, the Neil Fallon bit, the split your lungs of Blood and Thunder, and fucking nails it. There's so much power and anger when he does it. It's just... Uh, yeah, because I because they actually live streamed it when it first happened, and uh, so after I um, went on YouTube because they don't have any official releases, ripped it and cut it into things and have it as like an unofficial live album in my iTunes. It's very very good. Yeah, it's it's one of those live shows that like I would just come back to like you know if it's late in the evening I don't want to go to bed yet I want to just you know watch something like I'll put on that live album and it's just like such a it's so tight it's so good uh, it's such a nice summation of bits from across their career. Uh, yeah, it's one of those real standout live performances that I'll always come back to. Okay, so um, that brings us on to Mastodon's current release that brings us up to date and probably brings us up to the rant I, met, I teased in the very first bit of the first episode. Um, Mastodon's Medium Rarities, which is their um, their kind of collection of, all, of a load of unreleased stuff, cool, interesting ideas that never quite... Um, never made it to an official release or various live stuff things from splits people may have missed etc etc 
Yeah, so Finn, do you want to introduce this one? Yeah, so, so basically, um, I think as I mentioned previously, there's nothing pre-Leviathan on here. It's got a couple of live tracks, they've got a couple of instrumental uh, tracks, you know, mainly from the more melodic things. Uh, I guess from songs, well, which, as we know now from hearing this, songs where there are cool instrumental things going on, but because the vocals are obviously so present, you couldn't really hear them. Uh, and this is a couple of things they did, like they did a couple of covers, uh, a couple of split EPs that they did. And I mean, uh, you know, uh, the main reason that I'm happy to own this is I finally own a copy of Cut You Up With A Linoleum Knife. Uh, so I don't know if it, yep. so anyone, yep. who, anyone who might be listening uh, is, is the opening of the Aquatine Hunger Force movie, which is a show that on the same arm as my Mastodon tattoo, I have my uh, Master Shake tattoo. I only got into the show because Mastodon did a song for the for the movie, so I checked it out. Very, very funny. My only complaint is that the, uh, the song that they have on Medium Rarities isn't the whole thing because the actual movie opens with a song prior to that, which bleeds into this one, which is much funnier. Sorry, yeah, it doesn't have the Let's All Go to the Lobby parody at the beginning. And yeah, I, that to me also is the takeaway like that song like it's just so fucking good like uh brand doing his king diamond impression is just fucking amazing and the lyrics to that song like will just bring me joy for the rest of my life like the bit that i've taken from it like right at the end is um this is a copyrighted movie by time warner if i find you've sold it on ebay i will break into your house and tear your wife in half and it's just, it's so much fun. I fucking love that song. I, I think uh, me and Finn could probably both quote this song word for word, including <laughs> the whole additional intro. Like, it, yeah, I, I remember being <laughs> so excited when this came out because I've been, like, I, was, I liked actually Hunger Force as like, a kid who liked a lot of the Adult Swim stuff. And yeah, seeing Mastodon on this ahead of the movie was really fucking cool. And I'm really glad they put it out. As a whole, though, like, the. The album's really fucking weird. It's a really weird playlist to listen to. So you've got stuff like Asleep in the Deep and Jaguar God as instrumentals, um, along with many other instrumentals. Um, and then you've got loads of live versions of classic tracks and like, one original for it in the form of the opener Fallen Torches, um, which is kind of cool. An original that actually features Scott Kelly yet again. Um, and... It's, it's not a bad song it's, it's not one of the best it's it's fine um but like the album as a whole is really hard work to listen to as one continuous playlist because you leap from you know moments of their softest stuff into circle of the side squatch live which is it's just a weird playlist yeah i i, I thought if you're going to release a kind of career-spanning thing like this uh, I, I thought that you'd release it in chronological order, so you'd kind of say, oh, here's the things that you might have missed, but here's at least the order in which you would have missed them. Was the, yeah, I find going from... Because I think... Uh, I'm going to look this up. I think it goes immediately from the Sleep in the Deep instrumental to one of the live tracks, which I think might be Circle of Sky Scorch, or maybe Capillarian Crest. And that is a very jarring transition, especially from a studio track to a live track anyway, let alone the, the change in tone. Particularly considering that, like, you know, there's a fair amount of live Mastodon stuff out there and, like, we've got live versions of most of these tracks because a lot of them are live staples. I don't feel we needed these additional live versions or maybe put them on, like, a, a live thing where you've got, like, medium rarities for live stuff. But mixing it in here, like, the track listing's really odd and it seems really odd to me to choose these choices. Like, do I need another live version of Blood and Thunder? Not really, but it would be really cool to have a career-spanning thing of some of the stuff that's left off. And I think in that way, some of these instrumentals, like of Jaguar God, would have fit in really, really nicely and been a really interesting take on, like, you know, you've been through from some of the really early stuff that we talked about off the early demos. You've come all the way through, and then this is an instrumental version of Jaguar God. That's pretty cool. That flows nicely. That shows you a different side of what Mastodon have been throughout their career. 
but it doesn't really work like that. For a more extreme example of, um, are you aware of the record label Dark Descent? Uh, I'm sure you, you've probably got a couple of releases yourself, Rob, or Finn, maybe less so. Um, Dark Descent have done a few things in recent years where they, like more, probably around like 2012 kind of time, they put out stuff like Depravity, have an amazing four song EP, um, which was their only like proper official release, 20 minutes long. And they re released it. Um, this is an amazing old Finnish death metal EP. Um, their re release features every single demo, split release, and everything the band ever put out. So they're. This is an 18-minute-long release of a band's entire 80 minutes of recorded music. And they've done this for loads of bands. I feel Mastodon missed a fucking trick with this. Like, there is no reason Fallen Torches couldn't have included all the elements in it included, but be that full collection of everything we've never heard. Drop us, right? Give us the nine-song demo. Because people want to hear that. I know you evolved away from it, but let us hear it. It would have been fun. Put the nine-song demo on there. Put on the bonus tracks. Like, there's two Japanese bonus tracks of The Hunter that are only Japanese bonus tracks of The Hunter. They are not on this. Like, that's obvious choices for this collection. This collection could have been this great, like, three-disc, like, you know, three-hour-long monster of a release. Because it's for those people. It's for people like ourselves who have heard absolutely everything Mastodon would put out. Put that, like, weird soundtrack on there. Put all those split releases on there. Because they've done a lot of that, but they could have done the whole lot. And we have a massive booklet. And you know what? Like, yeah, that's going to be more expensive to make. Sorry, if you're doing that, if it's going to be three hours long, charge me 25 quid for the thing. And put it in a big, like, DVD-style case with a massive booklet. That would have been so... I just feel it's such a missed opportunity, missing all those those bits of a really long and storied career. You're exactly right, Phil. I was going to say, because literally the only people buying this are people who are such big fans. They want to hear all the songs that fell through the cracks. So yeah, fuck it, lean into it. Release all the things that we've missed. Because yeah, like you said, I'd pay 30 quid to, to get... So, so I could look at my CD collection and know I own every song Mastodon has ever released. And then it's it's a proper collector's item. Because, you know, as you've said, there have been so many little things that they've done which are now really hard to get hold of. Um, some of which, like, we haven't even been able to get hold of for this. Like, let alone getting physical copies. Put that all together. You can have, like, physical copies of all of it for the stuff that people genuinely want to hear but actually can't get. Whereas, like, a lot of the stuff on this, like, we've got live versions of most of these songs. We don't need more of them. You know, we can look up gigs on YouTube if you want to see other live versions. And, and we can look up the K-Pit show, which is better than any of these. So, you know, like, yeah, make a proper collector's item. That's who this is aimed at. I think in that vein as well, actually, be like, um, oh, I forget the name of it. Uh, there's, there's a big Cannibal Corpse box I've got. Um, and it is a free disc collection of loads of rarities. And the final disc is a live album. So just do that. Like, do a whole live album like Megadeth have done similar. Like, bands who are really big can do that. Like, do a nice four-disc collection where maybe throw one live album in it and then one live collection of loads of different songs. It's a bit schizophrenic, but... Okay, it's on that disc. That disc is going to be all over the place. I think, essentially, it's a missed opportunity because they've thrown this out and, unfortunately, it's ruined the exciting thing it could have been. Because it's got Lenonium Knife for the first time. It's got a new song to lead us into it. It could have been a really exciting, massive package. And instead they just did a generic thing. Also, 
not the first album released on that label in the last two years called Medium Rarities. Cattle Decapitation already have an album called Medium Rarities where the front cover is a bit of human skin being fried in a frying pan, thus the title is a pun. Mastodon's is not. <laughs> Call it Fallen Torches. Like... Because also Fallen Torches implies you know, flames that have faltered, which would kind of work for things that you might not have heard. So Yeah, anyway... Um... Wait, I think I think I've done that rant to death. But this kind of brings us to a close. As Rob mentioned earlier, this new stuff coming from Killer Be Killed, looking quite exciting from those day those three songs so far. New stuff coming from Gone is Gone. I imagine we are not long away from another Mastodon album. The guys still seem very much involved with this project. That possibly just waiting for the end of the pandemic to to put something new out. But um, the the thing like. At this point, is there anything you want to summarise about the Mastodon career? I've got a few questions to kind of end it on. But yeah, Finn, uh, do you want to summarise why you feel Mastodon are an important band? Yeah, I guess, I mean, I guess I've guess i said it for pretty much every album of theirs I've talked about. But I think what I really like about Mastodon is how uh, honest they are. So, I mean, I'll, I'll briefly talk about all their albums very quickly. So, so Remission, obviously, is all about fire and kind of primal anger. But that's the point in their career where they were um, you know, living in a van and trying to make it big. And that's why it's all so angry and... and shut off you know and then leviathan obviously based on moby dick is because when they start becoming successful and they said you know we can't allow ourselves to um you know chase the white whale of success and end up destroying ourselves in the process and then blood mountain is when they went, moved on to a major label uh you know and they start thinking you know we've got this huge hurdle to climb of moving into the mainstream we've got to make sure that we do it properly and then after that their stuff goes from being about the band to being personal obviously crack the sky is about bron's sister the hunter is about uh, brent's brother once we're around the sun has songs like aunt lisa which is about uh, bron's auntie who died uh, and then obviously emperor of sand is about bill's mum and troy's wife and i think you know i mean musically they're great as well I mean, we, we've had plenty of examples of that but i think they they never just write songs to go oh cool let's just write a cool riff there's always uh, like an emotional reason that they want to write a riff they're always trying to express something whether it's about the band or about themselves yeah they always just put their feelings into it and you know so even even the songs or albums i'm not so hot on it still feels like i'm listening to something personal and expressive not some thing that they've they've just shat out to to make some record sales the only thing i'd say is that like no one has mimicked Mastodon's sound. Like, no one's managed to do it, you know. They carved out a niche which was really unique and distinct and managed to get big off of something which never should have allowed a band to get the mainstream attention that they did. Uh, and with that, have continued to evolve and change and try new things. Uh, and that's really got to be commended. They did something that no one else has done and no one else has yet matched. I think you two are pretty really well. I, I was going to ask about other stuff, but I actually, I think that's a, a good place to call it. Um, yeah, thanks thanks for hanging on in there with me, both of you. I know this has been an absolute mammoth project in terms of... <laughs> of research or or mastodon <laughs> hey hey I, i'm always happy to talk about mastodon yeah <laughs> that's good to hear <laughs> but yeah i i know this has been a, a real big like research project and yeah thanks thanks for putting the time in and especially yourself in listening to every single project right, and thanks for having me on as well yeah well, well thanks so much for both uh ron finn for joining me and thanks a lot for listening if you've enjoyed this and, and like this kind of format of us covering stuff, if we're perfectly honest, stuff that has been covered before, let me know. Get in touch. Uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com, at Breakfast Metal on Twitter, or uh, Phil's Breakfast Metal on Facebook. Yeah, like as I say, as I said at the end of the previous episode, the next couple I'm going to do are going to get 
way more obscure for a bit because I feel I've been, you know, harping on albums you almost certainly heard before in uh, in recent episodes. You're, you're selling out. For yeah, them. exactly. Well, I don't want a Roadrunner Records. They're Mastodon. I'm, I, I am a complete poser <laughs> at this point. Let's cover Metallica <laughs> next. Oh no, no, the next one's like <laughs> Avenged Sevenfold's discography. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, um, thanks a lot for joining us for all of this. I, I realise it's been a lot of time spent on the same thing, but I, I feel they're a band worthy of, of delving into. As Rob says, like, as popular as they've been, they've never quite been replicated. Don't talk what? Don't talk what? You can't hear what? Don't let it work out.